0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the next episode of Biocompatibility. Sherry and I thought we'd just kind of mix it up this time and have me start the intro instead of the usual, you know, Sherry. <laughs> now that it's our first episode of, you know, 2021, we'd kind of hey, turn yeah. me. so this is
1: twenty twenty one. From now on, you do all the intros. <laughs>
0: I tell you what, you do the planning, I'll do the intros. That sounds like a. Uh,
1: oh, like a yeah. Fair trade, no, you know? No. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Happy New Year, everyone. It's our first episode of 2021.
0: Yeah. You know, 12 we to We have exciting go, news. More to go, something like that. Yeah, so,
1: at least 12. <laughs> <laughs> and we have exciting news to start off the year. NAMSA announced an acquisition of a company called Syntactics, which is a CRO uh, specializing in cardiovascular devices. So we thought it'd be kind of fun to get to know them a little bit and talk about a little biocomp.
0: Yeah. Always got to relate it back to biocomp. And I, I think I think we'll we're, we're able to do that. So uh we, I did. Think we made the connection.
1: Did. Yeah. Fortunately, we had a great guest who is also was an ex FDA reviewer for or the over six years at CDRH for vascular and endovascular devices. So Valerie Merkel is the associate director of regulatory strategy at Syntactics. So she works over there with a team of regular regulatory experts that also have lots of FDA experience and help their customers with regulatory strategies. Syntactics is definitely known for clinical trials for sure. And, you know, she's a great addition to the NAMSA team as well as the whole company in general is a great addition.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, Give everybody a chance to get to know some tactics, as well as to get to know uh, uh Valerie and uh and and like we say, talk some biocomp along the way.
1: Talk some biocomp. So Valerie Merkel is our guest, and uh, Dr. Merkel, like I said, has been at the FDA. Was at the FDA for more than six years. Traditional expertise and outreach include standards work, cardiovascular materials research, FDA external re- research collaborations. And she's also a frequent lecturer at colleges and universities on regulatory and biomedical engineering topics. She's a PhD in biomedical engineering from University of Arizona. She's a wildcat. Uh, she's co-authored numerous papers, reviewed manuscripts, and has presented at multiple at multiple academic, scientific, and technical conferences. She definitely has some well-rounded experience. She shared with us. So enjoy this episode with Valerie Merkel from Syntactics now or soon-to-be NAMSA.
2: Welcome to Biocompatibility, the first-ever podcast focused on the biocompatibility of medical devices. NAMSA is happy to bring Biocompatibility to you, where each episode features leading industry experts and their discussions on biocompatibility challenges. Be sure to visit www.namsa.com for more information and to access all podcasts and transcripts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode.
1: Welcome to today's episode of Chatability, Valerie, thank you for joining us and welcome to NAMSA, by the way. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah. So we are excited um, with uh, some of you listeners may not know this past. Well, you'll be listening to this end of January and we're in the middle of January. NAMSA announced an acquisition of Syntactics, which is a CRO a global CRO, and we've added them to our NAMSA team. So Valerie is one of our, our new team members, uh, although distantly maybe from Dawn and I, we're we'll probably <laughs> not going to cross paths too often, but we thought it'd be a great idea to, um, to invite you on and, and learn more about syntactics and, and even talk about your experiences with biocompatibility. Sounds great. I think the first thing to do, so first of all, I think I've mas- mastered pronouncing the name. Is that correct? Syntactics, Syntactic. right? Yeah, you yes. got it. <laughs> Don, have you mastered it?
0: Um, now that you said it, syntactics, yeah. Yeah. I have to look at it, <laughs> I, you know, and, you know, not like it's any harder than bio the first time you say it, right? I mean, come on, let's be honest. But, yeah.
1: That, that, is, that is it.
0: <laughs> Break it up into its uh, syllables. Look, you know, think about some phonetics and uh, away you go. You know, you're, you're good to go.
1: right. It's, I mean, we're excited to have you. Um, so maybe, why don't you just tell us a little bit about Syntactics and, and maybe why, you know, the NAMSA partnership, merger, acquisition, whatever we all want to call it, uh, the new team, why it's a good fit.
3: Sure. Happy to. So Syntactics was founded um, about 10 years ago in 2010 by Dr. Ken Oriel. He's a vascular, four certified vascular surgeon. So the company focus uh, to begin with was aortic and peripheral vascular, but naturally grew into other clinical areas, including coronary, heart valves, oncology, in vitro diagnostics, and a variety of other areas. Uh, The company goal from the beginning was always to be a full-service company. So we have clinical study services, imaging core labs, safety, so we do DSMBs and CECs data sciences, we have our own electronic data capture system for clinical studies, medical writing, and as of January 2020, regulatory strategy. So the company always did regulatory affairs to some degree, but with the joining of my colleague, Dorothy Abel, who's the vice president, of regulatory strategy, and myself shortly thereafter, we can now take regulatory to a whole new level for future clients. Syntactics has a variety of different offices, New York City and Cleveland and the United States, Belgium for Europe and for Asia Pacific and Singapore. And people always ask, you know, Syntactics is a hard name to pronounce. And we we're joking about it earlier. But it's kind of part of the, I joke that it's part of the onboarding, a good section of the onboarding <laughs> of you have to practice it in order to become a full employee. <laughs>
1: hey, uh, it works. <laughs>
3: But the name itself means bringing together with structure. So with all the different services that we offer, we really feel that we're bringing the key pieces together in order to help companies bring, you know, their safe and effective medical products to patients in a really efficient manner. Now with the combination of the NAMSA team, including yourself, we can really amp up those services that we can provide And really provide a full service, not just from the clinical side and the regulatory side, but also add some testing and some of your other services that you offer.
1: Right. Yeah. It's you know I think it's a really cool marriage. Uh, NAMSA, of course, has some clinical services as well and and regulatory services, and this just expands our expertise certainly into the cardiovascular world. Additional expertise there. I know I have heard from colleagues the excitement of the. The electronic data capture, like there's definitely excitement there, as well as CoreLab. Mm-hmm. I know a little bit about these things because years ago I was involved in some some training we did for the FDA uh, on clinical trials, so I listened to it a lot. But I had to refresh myself on what those things were. <laughs> you know, it's it's really exciting, and we're we're happy to have you here, and and um, and certainly happy to have all your team uh, join NAMSA. We have. You know, our names NAMSA is not hard to say, but it's people are like, what does it mean? You know, and, um, you know, well, you know, we don't use North American Science Associates as much as we used to. I think I think it's still officially North American Science Associates, but NAMSA is really what everybody knows. And so then they don't have to ask us, why is there an M in North American Science Associates? So (laughs) answered that question many times. (laughs)
0: I still remember when the signage still had the whole thing sitting on it, you know, North American Science Associates. And then we decided, oh, we'll we'll get rid of all that. But uh,
1: and the M was lowercase. Remember when the M was lowercase? (laughs) Everything else was capitalized, but the M was lowercase because it's like we know there's not really a word that starts with M, but we needed the M because NASA was taken. Um,
0: (laughs) And those were the days back when NAMSA just did testing, you know. 25 right? years, You know. Oh my, how t- things have changed. Although it's kind of interesting with all the changes, you know, incorporating other companies and and broadening the scope of things that Namsa does for medical devices. Just the, uh, the, the there are there are still times when I talk to people and they say, "You guys just do testing, right?" And and it's right. you know like you almost look in astonishment now. It's like. No, that's, that's, uh, how could you think that today? <laughs>
1: but, but, what rock you know. have you been under? No, <laughs> <laughs> you
0: but, know, so you know, Probably what you still reach out to NAMSA for, you know, and that's what you a know. A lot of people that's do, for done. sure. You know, it is what it is, but yeah. And biocomp even
1: being, people think that uh, that's all we do is biocomp testing. They don't even know about yeah. the other testing we do as well. So, but we, you know, we're a little partial to biocomp, so we'll, <laughs> we're we're okay with that. Fair so for, for the listeners but <laughs> listeners, if you want to learn more about um syntactics and and namsa or the or the the acquisition, you can go to www slash team that will take you directly to the recent release and get you to some other places that you can learn more about both companies. We're certainly excited and I'm excited to learn more about both companies and and meet more of our new teammates I think we added 80? Is it 80 or 90 people? Is yeah, that... we have just under a hundred employees. So yeah, the right. team grew, yeah. Your team grew by almost hundred. We grew by like 10%. Almost yeah. 10%. Yeah. That's awesome. So you always haven't been with Syntactics, right? So we we talked uh I gave it an, an introduction to you in the the pre um the early part of the podcast that you know you recently were with the FDA and you had certainly some industry background before that and a real expertise. In, in cardiovascular or, or blood contacting products, as we would might call them in the biocompatibility world. So mm-hmm. you know, maybe share some of your experiences with the FDA and some challenges that you saw with biocompatibility. I know Don has some some questions as well.:
3: Great. Uh, so after I got my PhD from University of Arizona, I joined the FDA team as a lead reviewer in the vascular and endovascular devices team. So my focus was primarily, aortic products, so permanent implants with the delivery system for the the external communicating component. I was there for six years, reviewed hundreds of submissions from pre-market and post-market, helping small companies, large companies, helping companies figure out their device evaluation strategy, their engineering testing, their biocompatibility testing that they need to do to support early feasibility, Pivotal. Um, making changes post-market, did some marketing submission reviews, and so really it covered the whole gamut of the product development cycle, and that was one of the things that I really enjoyed about my time at FDA was, you know, getting a product and following that all the way through approval, and then once it's on the market, helping the company figure out if there was a signal of some sort of event or changes and that sort of thing, and that was one thing that was really appealing with the opportunity at Syntactics for the regulatory strategy group was we really wanted to mirror what we were doing at FDA. So Dorothy, my colleague, she spent over 30 years at FDA as a lead reviewer doing everything that I just said, just amps up for a lot more because she did it for so much longer. and was involved sure. in a lot of different uh, teams and projects, but really trying to capture that FDA experience and that FDA team and functioning of how we work there and helping clients on the outside. Um, so that, like I said, one thing that I have really enjoyed about the current, current position.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I know we've had amazing, you know, we, we definitely have a lot of colleagues that have, have come from the FDA and certainly have had lots of great interactions with many folks at the FDA. We had actually an ex namsa person now at the FDA, uh, a biocompatibility right. expert there, Molly Ghosh. I'm sure you knew Molly. Oh yeah, um, I know Molly. Yeah. Yeah. So you know it's great to have these relationships and to be able to see lots of different things from customers it's one of the things we talk about on here when it comes to biocompatibility namsa sees so many different types of devices every year that there's so many challenges that we get to see that you know if you're a manufacturer and you're just making you know one thing you know, you don't have that broad scope of experience, and and we love to be able to see all the different things that we get to see from. The, and I think you had that experience at the FDA, and you'll enjoy yeah. that continuing here. Right.
0: Yeah, that was a uh, one of my uh, one of former colleagues at NAMSA, who's who's since retired. He he had always mentioned, and he had worked for some major medical device manufacturers in the past before joining NAMSA. And wh- when he came to NAMSA, you know, about after his first year. He was he was just amazed he said at the diversity of devices that he saw every day basically he said you know somebody would pick up the phone within namsa or a customer and contact him he said you never knew what was going to going to hit you next he said even when he worked for the, mm-hmm. his, his major the major manufacturer medical device manufacturers you know it, it was primarily focused he was in one area of their business let's just say and so you know, you got familiar with what you were dealing with, but um, it's, it's I, I would say one of the nice challenges about working at NAMSA, you know, as, as well as I would say in, in FDA, you just never know what's going to come in next. Might have an idea, might have a guess, but uh, it keeps you on your toes for sure. Um, it, it, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a diverse mix of things every day. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Yeah, yeah, I can easily say there was nothing cookie cutter about what I did at FDA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. People think, it's, yeah, especially BioCom, like a lot of people's misconceptions that I saw was people think BioCom's just a checklist, but there's <laughs> a lot of rabbit holes you can go down and a lot of ways you can stray off the path that can really delay things, you know, unfortunately, unnecessarily, but yeah definitely not a checklist
1: item, <laughs> right. Well, yeah. and you know that's a great that's a great point. and And one of the things I thought you know we'd try to make a connection to today is is you know, choosing good materials and making those right choices when it comes to safe materials so as to not derail your product down the road and and even derail a clinical trial. I think we've we've certainly seen. Companies post market that have been out there um, had products out there that made bad material decisions, and uh, one in France, I think, ended up in jail for it. So when you make those changes and not evaluate safety, this is a really key point. BioComp is such a key point in making good decisions early on to not derail yourself later.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you know when you were talking, you had mentioned you know. When you're at FDA, just kind of the concept of working with companies to help, say, refine or discuss what they were planning on in terms of biocompatibility strategies in general and and for different types of, of situations, whether it be, you know, IDE, PMA, 510K, what have you. And I mean, it's always been my belief that to some degree, if you select good materials, or at least have a process that you go by to select your materials that go into your device that you can kind of help to some degree, I'm not saying completely, but to some degree help leverage what you may or may do uh, may or may not need to do in terms of biocompatibility. And I, you know, in the background, I've got some feedback from the FDA from various reviewers, but I just wonder what your, your take was on that. I, I know it's, it's not everything, you know, if you, mm-hmm. but literally so many times I see companies just, just say. We selected well-characterized, understood materials that have been used in medical devices for decades. And they think that statement is really going to do something for them. But from my point of view, I think if you back it up with a proper safety evaluation that incorporates that information, then maybe it would. Maybe it's not everything, but maybe it would. I, I don't know what your thoughts are on that.
3: Yeah, it's, it's a good it's a good point because I have seen a lot of companies say that, well, we use the same material that every other company uses for products on the market. And so it's great. I don't need to do all of these things. And the caveat is your manufacturing or the company's manufacturing processes, processing needs, materials, how, how they are doing things are, could be totally different. And they don't have access to that and they can't replicate the same exact things. And those all impact biocompatibility. I have seen things for early feasibility studies like discussions on um, you use materials, kind of like that rationale you were just talking about float somewhat for an early feasibility study. So you can get that initial information and clinical information to help device development and keep moving your product forward, but have not seen that fly for a pivotal study, at least not for, you know, cardiovascular yeah. devices.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, and what, you know, I guess I, I'm thinking of, too, you know, for, you know, lower risk situations, then, you know, you might stand a better chance. And those lower risk situations, again, might be something like an early feasibility study, you know, lower number of, of, of uh, patients, tighter controls, that sort of thing, all playing into mm-hmm. your favor to help control risk. But I think we're from our, our side, my side, we're always tasked with coming up with some creative solution for biocompatibility, which you can be a little bit creative in some scenarios, I, I, I guess. But I guess the more creative you get, if you equate that to less testing, which I think is the goal someday, in some cases, without proper justification, like you are talking about, you know, in the background, to account for gaps, differences between one company and another company, you know, it just increases the regulatory risk that you're just going to slow things down in the end anyways. Um, yeah. But yeah. But again, I, I guess knowing what you're up against is a is key thing.
3: And I've only seen that rationale work for like a few different endpoints, like, um, you know, carcinogenicity or genotoxicity. You know, I've seen companies put in their early feasibility study, like patient monitoring plans to help with you know, not do the material mediated pyrogenicity or, you know, some other similar endpoints, but right. you're only going to get out of so much. And then you're taking the risk on the other side that something could happen. And like you said, then there's the regulatory risk as well of delaying
0: things. Yeah. That's interesting. I
1: think we had that question yesterday. We just did a, a training. <laughs> Didn't we have somebody ask if they could get out of material mediated pyrogen with their clinical trial? I swear we got that question.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's, and it's probably one of those questions where I replied, maybe or it depends. Yeah, yeah or, it depends. Or, or, that's or our favorite <laughs> yeah. answer.
1: It depends. It depends. Um,
0: yeah. But, you know, that th- this kind of discussion in terms of like good material selection, I don't want to belittle the idea that, like, if you go out there and you select stuff that literally has no evidence of ever being used in medical devices, that you're not going to put yourself in a worse situation because then somebody's Mm -hmm. curiosity might ask a little bit, you know, might demand a little bit more information because really you're going to use that in a medical device. Never heard of that before. And that's not the situation I want to be in if I'm a manufacturer of a medical device, but, and then this all, I think does relate back to like discussion sharing of, I've had, I don't know if it's been on a podcast because we have way too many discussions sometimes, (laughs) but you know,
1: oh you talk we... to me too much. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I didn't say that. I think that's what he said. <laughs> I think that's what he said. <laughs>
0: but no, nope when we talk it. about, you know, we talk about the big three, CSI, the need for those, and it's like hard to make those go away. But when we talk cardiovascular, it's kind of bigger than the the big three because now you got some aspects of hemocompatibility you got to deal with. You got heterogeneicity, mm-hmm. you know, systemic toxicity you know, depending on how long your device is around in the patient and all that stuff. But at a minimum, you got to deal with hem- hemocompatibility and some level of at least acute systemic tox, including material mediated. So, you know, it and, and it's it's hard to make some of those things go away just as a basic element of bio count for these devices.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Not yeah,
0: impossible. I, I never wanted to, you know, say anything's <laughs> <Not> impossible. But <laughs>
1: Not impossible. you're
0: going to have to justify all that. And, and I, I guess that goes back to that. Uh, safety evaluation whether it's material selection influencing clinical trials and and kind of what sherry had said as far as our topic today i mean you can delay all kinds of things because of biocomp i mean totally. it's so frustrating how often biocomp is you know the time limiting factor for any number of different reasons
1: mm-hmm. you know when yeah, we talked yeah. about this week too we talked about you know that you know as a reviewer. And we've talked about this before. I know in many conversations, Don apparently too many. <laughs>
0: <laughs> did I say it with disgust in my oh, no. you, did I don't. you did not.
1: You did not. You did not. We've spent lots of times in airports, lots of time in airports, airports, and more airports. Not recently, but lots of times in yeah. airports. So, anyway, that that the you know, as the reviewer, they don't know your product. They only mm-hmm. know what you tell them, and you know we stress the importance of that plan is telling them your story telling them what you know about your materials telling them how you chose your materials tell you telling them why and you know explaining not only how your device works in a good way but also why you chose what you chose and that you made conscious decisions to get these materials not just i went with the cheapest you know silicone supplier i could find It's looking at those things, even when we're making choices about materials early on that are going to save us money down the road.
3: That's a really good point, not just for biocompatibility, but engineering testing and other Mm sterilization packaging, like other aspects of the submission is a lot. When I was at FDA and even working with clients now, a lot of clients don't or companies don't want to provide that rationale or the thought process behind it. And you know, companies spend years and years developing these things, and they know why they made the decisions and how they ended up at the design they ended up with and the test plan that they ended up with. But FDA only sees what is in front of them, and if that background's not there, right. that leads to a lot of questions. And sometimes, you know, when you end up going down a trail, it's hard to get back onto the right trail to get you to your end goal.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can. Kind of and I too. Guess- yeah, Go ahead, Sherry. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you know, if, if you look at FDA's biocompatibility guidance, you know, and, and, you know, I've mentioned this before, but it seems to be overlooked quite often in their biocompatibility guidance. They indicate that I think they refer to it as a biological assessment or a plan or something of that nature should be the, the lead in to the biocompatibility section of a submission so that the logic can be explained of how biocompatibility w- was addressed for a device. And, I mean, there are numerous times when I actually get to see a submission because so often I just get involved with the one little part. And, you know, it's I, I don't often see that being done. So, again, you, you're kind of missing the story, like all the, mm-hmm. how all the nuts and bolts were put together to build the car. I, I don't know. I just gave you a car. I, that's, that's all I can <laughs> tell. And um, yeah. so, yeah, it's definitely important.
3: And we kind of talked a little bit about biocompatibility and other aspects too, like potentially delaying clinical study initiation and not bringing FDA along. Like the, A lot of companies, unfortunately, don't get FDA input before they do their biocomp evaluation or they just you know, send it in assuming it's a checkbox type thing. And yeah, we did it. It's standard testing and it's going to be good to go. And it goes to FDA and there's issues with it and unfortunately ends up having the delay and delay and delay and you delay your study initiation, you're delaying getting it to market, you know, delaying getting it to patients.
1: Yeah. If you think biocomp testing is, is expensive, delay a couple thousand patient (laughs) clinical trial and see how much that costs you. Right. I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a huge expense time every day, every day you're not getting that data that you need to get you closer to get market approval. I, you know, we had a customer once that actually gave us like a timeline of how much it was costing him every day and through different programs where we were able to shorten it. And it's fascinating when people really look at how much money that time costs them. That yeah. made sense, and I think.
0: <laughs>
3: yeah. I mean, FDA subs are free to send in to get their feedback ahead of time. And then you have written agreement or at least comments on what their thoughts are or what additional information that, you know, it's a great way to find out what's confusing to them and what they're really going to key in on. And so when you send in that real submission, you know, you know what additional information you need to provide to hopefully streamline that review. Yeah,
1: for sure. Well, I just found my notes that I took last week when we talked. (laughs) (laughs) Before we recorded, I told them that, that I'd lost my notes. So I had no idea what we were talking about. But I flipped my notebook another page and there they were. Apparently, I took my notes on page three of a notebook instead of uh, who knows. But I do think we've covered most of the things that we talked about. Did you talk about one of the things that we talked about was changing design, like or changing materials while you're in a trial and like what that, you know, what that can do to your your clinical trial? had a rough note about that. I'm not sure what we were going to talk about about that.
3: (laughs) So one of the things like in general that you need companies need to think about when they're making changes is how big is the change? What is it impacting? Is it considered a minor change, a major change? Is it a critical component change? Is it a critical material change and what can be impacted as a result of that? I've had some companies, make, you know, significant design changes to their product during the course of a clinical study and then they end up at the time of marketing submission and they want to market this new device and, you know, I look at them and go, "Well, your clinical data is not representative of the device and you now want to market because of all these changes that you have made." Wow. And so if it's a significant if it's a significant change, then, you know, that needs to be talked about and discussed and it's kind of a unfortunate example of why you need to bring FDA and FDA's along the ride. So if you're thinking about going somewhere with your product, eventually that's a conversation you need to have with FDA before you've implemented the change. So that way you understand the repercussions of that change, you know, later on and can plan accordingly how to do that. Don, uh, have you had cases
1: of that happen?
0: Oh my goodness. That's... that's...
1: <laughs> We have the whole the vendor quit making our material like happened in the middle of clinical trial. I remember hearing certainly that happening. and Oh, they decided they're not going to make this and they're modifying it now to add this plasticizer. So what do we do? We're we're in the middle of a clinical trial. And that's, of course, where, you know, good biological safety plan and assessment and evaluation is critical.
0: Yeah. And I, I have seen situations like like mid trial where. You know, I'll say companies just, I mean, they had to change. They had to make a change. Um, maybe it was feedback from physicians during the like the, the clinical trial, and they had to do something different. Mm-hmm. And I, I certainly, I've seen situations like that where in working with the FDA and documenting evidence of safety on paper was, was fairly well received because everybody was in a tight spot. I mean, in that situation, mm-hmm. you know. But then when you see these kind of, I know they're not nonsensical, but they feel awful (laughs) nonsensical when somebody just comes up and says, Hey, guess what? We're going to change this. And then, you know, they, they present it, you know, like as a supplement and, and, and lately I've seen some pretty tough reviews on supplements that were focused on changes where, Uh you know, maybe in the past, the company might've been used to getting You know, I would just got to throw in a supplement, you know, to a PMA or whatever it is, and it's no big deal. But then all of a sudden they get hit with comments just like this was a brand new device that was getting submitted. And, and, um, I mean, some of those have been tough almost to the point like you're starting over again uh, in terms of Biocom.
3: Yeah. I've had that, unfortunately. I've seen a case of that at least one when I was, um, at FDA where, you know, you making a change and, you have to do the whole suite of testing again but it, it does happen
0: yeah and and i understand the the uh, the likelihood in a lot of cases that you know if you are you know have a device and there's clinical trials going on for an extended period of time the likelihood that when you're ready to go to commercialization that the device has been just rock salad the whole time and you didn't have to change a single thing there's probably something you're going to have to modify if not manufacturing site you know suppliers of materials something like that that you're going to have to figure out what you're going to do before you commercialize it and i think so to the most point i think companies are understanding of that but um they do tend to be astonished sometimes when uh when changes cause such an uproar um <laughs> but i mean in my opinion and in, in, in a lot of those cases it's pretty justifiable i mean when you think about the industry yeah. and and yeah. And the horror stories that are out there in the industry that nobody wants to be repeating ever again as well. Yeah,
3: exactly. And some of the talking about like supplier changes or even some more material changes. If you're at the time of marketing submission, there's always the question too, is is it easier to include it in the marketing submission and potentially hold up your approval or can you just send in that thirty day notice the, the day that letter gets issued, just send it in and then you're you know, you're building on your approval and you're just focusing the review on that change rather than is this device safe and effective? And then, oh, by the way, we have the supplier change that we want to do, too. Do we have data to support that sort of thing? That's also a point of a conversation that I've had while at FDA and even now in tactics, now in AMSA. <laughs> it's going
1: to take a little bit What's to our, stop saying. <laughs> what would our celebrity name be? Syntampsa. Sin, oh, I like it. <laughs> N- 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 tactics. Yeah, that one doesn't work as well. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> the celebrity name. I like it. I was having um, trouble
0: yesterday with multi-syllable words. You were. You so were. I'm just, just yeah. going to stay quiet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you were. You're doing much better today. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I think this has been a lot of fun and some really good information. Any other last points you want to make around this topic before we go into our fun game here of two truths and a lie? The only
3: other thing I was going to add that I had from my notes for us to, to at least touch on was the potential for adding clinical endpoints to your clinical studies based on your biocompatibility oh, right. results. And I have seen Like material mediated and- pyrogen. <laughs> like yeah or, um you know adding capturing hypersensitivity reactions because you had you know a test signal on your file compatibility panel that you did and so that's also an option that could potentially happen yeah that's a good it, point
0: yeah and i think like even in the training that we we gave this week there's always kind of this concept of you know, how can we use clinical data to offset the need for biocompatibility testing? And, and you know, when it's not a clinical trial, it's a little bit harder, obviously, because you're going to turn it loose right away, you know, to the public. So you can't use right. the yeah. general public as your uh, clinical trial, um, unfortunately. But in a controlled situation, you know, yeah, I, I mean, the ones that come to mind for me are, you know, I've seen controls for hyrogenicity, for complement activation, some aspects of hemocompatibility. Okay you know, which with additional clinical observations and controls put in place. So it's kind of a, I'd say kind of a combination of things, not just the fact that you're doing clinical, but you might have to add something on a form for an observation to be made so that, you know, you're controlling risk that you don't have biocomp for.
1: Yep. Yeah. It's one of the things that, you know, before we really got into clinical trials, I would have ever thought, well, maybe there's a, there should be a whole team involved that is doing all these different components, talking about things together so that we can help in early stuff, avoid mistakes down the road. And I never would have made the connection before, you know, we started kind of doing the the MRO process at NAMSA, where we might work with somebody from beginning to end and and learning things in the beginning that are going to help through clinical trial and post-market. So that's one of the really cool things about Our organization, your organization, and our organization—that we can get these teams of experts together. And I know you and Don have already worked together before on projects, Mm -hmm. so that's just super cool. That people are are getting more um, are more open to the boy. We need to have input from lots of experts all the way through the process. Yeah, agreed. So, all right, we're ready for two truths and a lie. This is our fun game. We play with almost every guest. We let a few French colleagues (laughs) off the hook once. But almost everybody gets this uh, initiation. And then Dawn and I, of course, have to keep coming up with things that are interesting. Um, And without any traveling to new training, I don't have any new training travel experiences. That's a lot of mine were around that. So I'll go first today because I think mine are least. I know mine are really bad. So... We'll just get the disappointment over with. So number one, I have been contacted by a podcast listener to give them possible career advice after college. Number two, I have an advertising degree and it just shows that degrees don't mean much 25 years later (laughs) for me anyway. And number three, I've heard an expert use an example of baking bread to describe some biocomp testing. Hmm. I'm
3: going to say the last one, the baking bread's not the
0: true one. That's the I was going to say number two.
1: What? That my degree doesn't mean anything? You think my degree means something?
0: Uh, <laughs> I thought you were lying about your degree.
1: No, no. <laughs> that's, you didn't uh, know that? Yeah. Nope. Yeah, I do have please. an advertising degree. <laughs> and I'm talking about, you know, BioComp, right? You were right, though, Valerie. That was a lie. At least not that I remember, um, but I just thought, what could I, what could I put in here? Baking bread. Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard that analogy. I've heard a lot of different analogies, but I don't think I've heard the baking bread analogy. So you sniff that one out. Okay. All right. Who's next? So
3: I, well, so I wrote two. Uh, one that's bio serious and then one that's about me personally. So uh, is there one you prefer?
1: Whatever. You can mix them up.
3: oh all right so so i'll mix i'll mix them in so i learned the framework of quality system regulations while working at three mile island nuclear station from my experience FDA, and at syntactics approximately this is my own personal estimation nine out of ten sponsors we don't get FDA's input on chemical characterization prior to doing it. won't have their chemical characterization done according to FDA's expectations. And if your biocompatibility evaluation was adequate to support pivotal study initiation, it will also be adequate to support a marketing submission.
1: So I'm super intrigued by number one, and I'm hoping <laughs> that's true because I want to learn more. So I'm going to say three is the lie.
0: That's where I was going too.
1: Yep is the one I- <laughs> we Ooh. we both know is <laughs> very true oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay yeah so someday when we can travel and we're in the same city we need to sit down with a, a beverage and i want to hear all about the three mile island <laughs> <laughs> nuclear it yeah. was it nuclear so, power station yeah so
3: three mile island was the one that had the partial meltdown you know several decades ago when I worked there before I went to graduate school as a system engineer. And as part of my duties, I, you know, extracurricular activity at work, I used to give tours of the side that partially melted down, you know, not in the reactor building, but like on the rest of the site, because the one that's in operation is right next to it. And so, you know, someday over some some wine, we can, can show you some cool pictures and we can talk about it, because uh, it's That's
1: fascinating. (laughs) That is fascinating. I love that. All right, Don,
0: stump us. Uh, These are kind of weak. These are kind of weak. Oh, I think it'll be obvious, but whatever. Oh, had a customer ask if it was advisable to add a chemical that was a reproductive and developmental toxin to a material that's used in the device, which was used on children. A lot to digest there, I know. But anyways, it's kind of interesting. We both had... A question on chemical characterization or a comment. I would recommend using complete chemical characterization of device extracts to screen all materials considered for use in a device. Let's see here, having trouble reading my own handwriting here. In <laughs> <laughs> when describing the materials selected for use in a device, I, o- I avoid the use of the word novel like the plague or like COVID-19. I guess. Or like
1: COVID 19. COVID 19 is the new plague.
0: Yes. All right. So there you
1: go. Uh, Yeah, I know it. I know it. All right. Because I know, you know, what do you got, Valerie? So I'm just going to say, I'm hoping number
3: one is false just because of the statement that
1: you
0: made. You would hope. You would hope. Wishful thinking, I must say.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Number two. Number two. Yeah,
0: number two. That sounds like a fool's errand there. And an expensive, yeah, expensive errand as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, Don is certainly not going to be someone you go to if and expect them to tell you to do full characterizations with extracts on a surface-only device.
0: Yeah, probably not. Probably not. Probably not. Especially <laughs> just to screen to screen the materials. Right. If just you to screen, screen the materials, them. right? <laughs> I'm saying it's well, a little extreme, uh, maybe a little much.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us, Valerie. We're super excited that. You all at Syntactics are part of the NAMSA family, and I look forward to someday when we can all get in the same room or at least be in the same city and and hang out and get to know each other better. But in the meantime, thanks for joining us, and I had a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. This was great. All right. right.
0: Good to talk to you all. Thanks,
1: everyone, for listening. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you enjoy biocompatibility, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast store. For free resources and material, remember to visit www.namsa.com/resources/podcast.